HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest you check out my other podcast. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager here at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make your gift. Today's theme, last show for a while. Whether you're a faithful listener to this podcast or just tuning in for the first time, I want to say thank you. It means more than I can describe that you would spend your valuable time listening to me talk with other people. I've recorded more than 200 episodes of Feast Your Ears, and today marks six years almost to the day since I started this podcast. That's a lot of people and a lot of ground covered, and a lot of pizza for lunch. Some episodes remain relevant, like those about ingredients, places, experiences. Some, not as much as there were many talks with restaurant owners, brand creators, chefs, and more whose projects discussed here have gone by in the path of history. This is not the end of Feast Your Ears, at least not yet, but I will be putting the show on hiatus for a while, at least until 2022. In the meantime, I'll be spending a lot more time focused on my other podcast, Time for Lunch. It has been a privilege and a pleasure to come into your ears these last six years, and I'm grateful that you're here. My last guest of this 210-episode run of Feast Your Ears is someone I have a huge amount of respect for and someone that we should all be paying attention to because she's paying attention to the complicated machinations around food policy in Washington and beyond. Lisa Held also hosts The Farm Report right here on HRN, and as always, it was a pleasure to chat with her recently for this episode. I'm Lisa Held. I'm a journalist. Um, I cover the food system and how it relates to the environment um, and other uh, issues like social justice, um, food sovereignty, labor, immigration, um, all of the various impacts um, that, that you can think of when it comes to food and agriculture. Um, climate. I don't think I said climate. That's a huge one. <laughs> um, and I currently I'm the senior policy reporter for Civil Eats. And then I also write for many other publications like The Guardian, Foodprint, um, occasionally Washington Post, kind of all over the place. And I host The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. Yes. So thank you so much. So you're one of one of my co-hosts, one of many here at Heritage Radio Network. Yes. Um, but you did not create the Farm Report, right? You took that on at a certain point. Yeah, the Farm Report is actually one of Heritage Radio Network's original shows. I think it, if it's not the first, it's one of the first shows that's been on since the beginning. Um, and I think it's had 
at least three, maybe four other hosts before me. Uh, and I took it over about three years ago. Cool. And was that something that you had always wanted to get into? Like is, I mean, obviously like, you know, one of, one of my sort of questions for you is like, did you get interested in journalism first or food policy first? Or like, how did you come to, to be kind of at the, at the center of our food world here? <laughs> Do you want the long answer? Or the short? <laughs> it's a really long story. Um, I mean, so, so I came, I mean, into this space, I guess, mostly as a journalist. So I, um, got my master's degree in journalism, um, about a decade ago and um, started my career as a journalist that way. I had already worked for several years in nonprofits before then. And then I kind of went back to school and decided to, to pursue journalism full time. Um, but my the first part of my journalism career was more in the kind of healthy lifestyle space. So I was covering mm -hmm. Uh, fitness and health and nutrition. And, and so it involved food um, a lot. Like I was covering food, but from this very different angle of kind of, you know, what, what is a healthy diet look like? And, you know, should, you know, what is this diet versus this diet right. uh, look like? And, you know, how much vitamin C do you need? And, and th those kinds of sort of more lifestyle questions and kind of surface level, um, uh, explorations, I guess I would say. And, uh, that was never really what I wanted to do, but I was just getting started in my journalism career. And it actually, I think informed my path because what I figured out as I, as I kind of, um, worked my way up the ladder and, and, and wrote more and more stories and became an editor was that, to me, I could see there was just so much more we weren't covering that, mm. um, that was so much more important, right, <laughs> like, right. you know, I'd be like writing the story about, uh, you know, uh, how to get more avocado in your diet. I'd be like, where are these avocados coming from? Like right. I've never seen an avocado tree. I mean, that's like a simplistic kind of example, but. Sure. I um, mean, it, it sounds like the, the earlier part, you know, the, the early work in journalism, I mean, it, to me, what comes to mind is like, it sounds like you were covering a lot of stuff that was like fads. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, whereas like now, you know, like climate change is not a fad. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of, yeah. And it was also this, this space in, you know, there's, there's lifestyle journalism and there's news. And I, like, I always knew I wanted to be more of like a news reporter of yeah. somebody who is like, you know, really doing more investigative work and, but you know, you, you've got to build your career and, and there is that space where, you know, the, you're catering to, right, like covering fads to like, what do people want and what are they, you know, what, what are they interested in? And, um, for me, it's like, I, you know, you still have to think about that because obviously like you need people to read what you're writing and, yeah. and um, but, uh, it's for me, like the, the service of journalism is, is presenting facts and, and uncovering stories that people might not know that they, that, that they need to know. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah. And so I just, I kind of just transitioned my career, um, over the years to focus more, to kind of move more towards covering food systems and, and agriculture and the environment, um, <laughs> over time. And I mean, I guess, the, the other part is like, I had always bef before journalism, before I worked in nonprofits as a kid, I mean, even like I grew up in a place where I think I developed a really deep appreciation for food and, um, agriculture to an extent, um, or just at least like the way food is produced. Like my, we had a huge garden growing up. I mean, I, as a kid had to like bring the compost out to the compost pile mm. every day. <laughs> and, um, you know, my mom was just really, really passionate about growing a lot of our food, par partially because she believed it was healthy for us. And partially because for her, it was an economic decision. Like my right. family didn't have a lot of money and it was like, we're going to grow all these, these expensive foods, like all the vegetables, <laughs> the, mm. the things that are more expensive at the, the grocery store. Um, and, yeah. And I, but I, so like from the time I was a kid, I was like going out and, and, you know, weeding the garden and picking, 
you know, peas and tomatoes and, and lettuce for dinner. And so I kind of grew up with this like connection to, to food in that way that I think a lot of people don't yeah. have to start out with. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I also, you know, I, I think a lot about, and I'm sure you do too, about the cost of food, right? Like not only the, mm-hmm. like, not the like cost at the register at the grocery store or at the, you know, farm stand, but like the actual costs that go into producing that food and in different channels. And, and obviously there's a lot of complicated things there, but my sense is that like food has gotten even cheaper so like, I, you know, I wonder if there are, and I'm sure there are still people who, who make that same calculation that your family did about, you know, well, you know, really good tomatoes are really expensive, but we want really good tomatoes. So we're going to grow them ourselves and we're going to, you know, our engage child labor uh, <laughs> to, help, uh, yeah. know, to help make that happen. But I mean, that's part of what, you know, it's part of being in a family. But I also wonder if as the world has changed and if we, you know, as we've moved into a place dominated by social media and everybody carrying a smartphone and all these things, if to a certain extent, some of that people say, well, I can get a tomato for 69 cents a pound. Maybe it's not a great tomato, but I don't really care. Yeah. No, I, I think about these questions all of the time. And I mean, it's, it's one of my, one of the things that I think I want to really explore more, um, in the future, this, this question of the cost of food and, and this, this is something people in this world talk about a lot, like, oh, growing, growing your own food is actually not, um, an economic benefit because for the reasons you're saying, like, you know, food has gotten so cheap that actually you could never grow enough that it's meaningful. And, but I mean, it, and it's an interesting question for me because of my, my history. And I, I think, um, one thing is just like, it's, it really depends on where you are and what resources you do and don't have. And so like, I, you know, I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of, a lot of cash flow, but I grew up in this small rural town and we had a lot of space and just soil, like, like my hat, like my mom, you could just plant stuff outside. You know, if you live in a city and you don't have like, you know, a couple pots on a fire escape are not going to make a meaningful (laughs) dent in, in your food needs for your family. Right. But if you, if you do have space where you can, where you can plant a lot, then, then that really changes the calculation a lot. Um, also like, you know, um, we had, you know, our housing was secure. So my mom, um, she, she worked full-time later, but in, when I was a really small kid, she babysat, we had all these kids at our house. She just like babysat kids. That was how she made money. And, and so she was home. And so she would be gardening and taking care of this stuff all day. And that, cause it it, it involves so much labor. If you're going to grow a lot of food. Right. And most people these days, that's not an option. They have to go and and work full time and they don't have time to, you know, be pruning tomato plants. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a very, like, it's a very interesting thing to, to start to think about because right, there is an economy of scale, right. That's how I mean, mm-hmm. industrialization. I mean, you know, there are, there are some good things, right. And sometimes an economy of scale is a good thing. Um, but it makes me think about other places I've traveled. And I was thinking about this just the other day, looking around like my neighborhood in Rhode Island and how many people have any sort of a garden at all. And, and, you know, those of us that are growing stuff, it's relatively token, right? Like one person has a bunch of rhubarb plants, so they have lots of rhubarb in the spring, but it's not like they're planting on any kind of a cycle to make sure they have vegetables all year. And that's something I sort of, I strive for and would love to get to, but I don't, I don't get there. Like we have some tomato plants, we have some eggplants, we have some ground cherries and like we have some volunteer squash in the compost right now, um, which is actually my favorite. My favorite is like when the volunteer plants show up in like yeah. in the compost and it's like, what's that going to be? Oh, cool. That's butternut squash sort of. Uh, can't wait for them to be ripe and then we'll eat them. Um, but it, it makes me think of like traveling in Japan, for instance. And like when you take the train through like small towns in Japan, everybody has a garden behind their house. Like huh. anybody, like people don't have lawns. Yeah, They don't, you know what I mean? Like they don't have like this outdoor space for leisure in the same way necessarily that, that we do in the United States. They have a bunch of stuff planted on anything they have. And for the most part, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it's not the way it is here where people might put out like, you know, tomatoes and extra eggs in front of their house and make a little extra money. It's really just to have some extra food that they don't have to buy. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I mean, I do think, um, 
It seems like, you know, more people are gardening now here, maybe since since the pandemic, but I don't know how if that's going to last. And yeah, um, right. That's, I mean, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I had uh, I interviewed um, someone from Baker Creek Seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, on here uh, a while back, uh, a couple months ago. And, you know, last year was their like biggest year ever. Like they sold yeah. more seeds than ever because, yeah, lots of people were home from the pandemic and got into gardening. I, you know, uh, local to me here is a is a commercial compost, organic compost operation. And they sold out of compost last year for the first time in the 45 years the company has been in existence. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, actually, my I have a compost company that I use here in Baltimore, and they, they've been just struggling to to keep up with demand, too. Yeah. <laughs> I kept being like, um, hey, guys, where's my compost? Because they pick up our scraps and then yeah. they bring you back compost. Oh, and, cool. Um, but, yeah, it, it's the same thing here. You know, just there's a lot of demand and, um, you know, we'll have to – I'm just curious if that will last or as we sort of reorganize our lives back to kind of – being out of the house more, if it will just kind of be a distant memory, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I, it, yeah, right. It, it's interesting to, to know to see like where these ripple effects are going to go. Um, you know, like people who got into making sourdough at home, for instance. Like, are they yeah. going to keep? Are they going to keep doing that after the pandemic or not? I guess it depends on what they feel like they're getting from it, um, and whether it was just something to do and something to learn about, and then you move on, or is it something that now is part of their life? Their you know their life. Right. Uh, where do you find inspiration for the topics and specific stories that you cover? Like, do you, do people request that you write about specific topics? Do you have, you know, are you constantly pitching ideas? How does that, how does that work from your, for, for you as a journalist? Yeah, it's, it's a mix. Um, people are definitely always telling me things I should write about. That's one of my favorite phrases. Oh, you should write a story about that. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll consider it. Um, but yeah, I get, obviously I get a lot of, um, pitches and, and press releases from, from food companies, from, um, policy offices, from, um, agriculture groups, nonprofits, you know, like my inbox is filled with kind of, um, just people saying, here's a thing that happened and, and can you cover it? And it's for me, like, it's rare, you know, some journalists, that just write kind of short news stories and are, and are writing every day, um, are just kind of covering those things as they come in. Um, but that's not really how I work. Like, especially for civil eats, um, we try to tell kind of deeper stories that, um, get at, at bigger questions. And so usually what I'm doing is like, I'm paying attention to everything that is coming into my inbox. I'm, you know, paying attention to what's happening in DC. I'm, out there talking to farmers, going to conferences, visiting farms. Um, and usually ideas kind of just like bubble up over time, you know? So at, at this point I've been doing it for, for long enough that, um, things I, I'll see something and I'll say, huh, well, you know, just last month I saw this report came out and now I'm seeing this farmer is, is applying that, that that thing that I just saw the report about it. And so it'll kind of, it's like a process of something sort of germinating and then mm. um, me thinking like, okay, there's something here that, that hasn't been covered before. Um, or, um, you know, like I, I talk to my editors a lot about just kind of big questions that um, aren't being answered in, in other kind of traditional media, um, you know, things like, uh, I did this big story this year um, for Civil Eats that was about um, organic farm. I think it was literally the headline was something like, um, can organic farming um, help? I forget what, <laughs> something about organic and the climate crisis. Um, so it was just like kind of this this question of like, okay, everyone's talking about regenerative, regenerative agriculture. We're all talking about food and climate. And 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 now the organic industry has kind of been coming in and saying like, hey, you forgot about us. Um, right. We like we've been doing this and organic is actually good for climate. And we were like, is it, you know, we, like based on what the organic industry looks like today, based on the science that exists, like we should look into that. And so like that, that was kind of this idea that, you know, it might be a year before you're, you think like, OK, this is something we should start looking into. Um but yeah, it's it's kind of a mix. It's 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 a I think 
when like the best ideas come from kind of just like a deep understanding of the beat and over time you just say like oh here's this thing that no one's covering um you know one story that i i did years ago that is a good example of this it was for um mark bitman's publication that doesn't exist anymore he Mm. did but it was called um young farmers are inspiring but are they making a living and it was just this kind of exploration of all these these kind of because I had been seeing for years in, in, um, food media, these stories of like, Oh, this cool young, you know, woman moved from Brooklyn and started a farm and now she's doing this regenerative thing. And, and here's this guy over here in Baltimore doing, and, you know, I had been visiting those farms and talking to people over years. And like, one of the things that I gleaned over time was that, they were barely breaking even, right? Like they, they can go on vacation. They can, right. um, you know, sometimes like pay, you pay for help. They get, and so I was like, oh my gosh, like this is, why is no one talking about this issue? Um, and so I did this big story where I, I talked to a lot of different farmers and then brought in experts on like the economics of farming. So yeah, it can be, it's, it's usually like a process, you know, but then also once in a while, it's just, oh, this, this, thing is happening that is really time sensitive and is happening right now and is important. And so we'll cover it quickly, right. but it's a mix. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because I feel like a lot of the, you know, the, the work that you're doing is kind of like there, you know, that there's a whole world that is creating, you know, the, the stuff you used to work on, that's like fad based, right. That like, yeah. I mean like, and that's the thing, like the covering the story about like the hipsters who move out of New York and start a farm is like, really great inspirational like fad piece for some fluff website (laughs) but doesn't get to the important part of like oh wait like these people are doing this but like have no savings and like can't really afford to like you know move forward in the world um and can't afford to grow because they can't hire anybody etc etc Right. Yeah. And I like, I don't want to be too much of a jerk about it because I, I mean, I do think it's not that there's no value in like a story that just says like, Hey, look at this great farmer who's doing this thing. Like, I I think, you know, there, there, there is, you know, there, a case could be made that there's value there for that farmer. Maybe it it makes, you know, it's this moment for them and, and maybe like it inspires other people to, to grow food or, but yeah, but my interest is more in kind of, um, digging a little deeper and, and thinking about, well, what, what are these little stories about how people are living and how people are working and growing? Like what can they tell us about bigger kind of trends and not fads, but trends in terms of like, you know, the way the planet is warming or like what we need to do to stop that or, you know, kind of the, the more systemic, um, issues. Yeah, or or how can we support these farmers more than just like reading an article about them and being like, oh, that's cool. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you recently uh, had a fellowship at the Vermont Law School Center for Food and Agriculture. I did. Tell me about what that was like. Yeah, it was wonderful. So it was a, a, a media fellowship. Um, and what it meant was basically that I got to go spend two weeks at Vermont Law School and um, audit a class. And the class that I audited was called the Farm Bill. Mm. So it was um, kind of history, context, um, and um, just kind of information on the federal Farm Bill, which, um, <clears throat> sorry, I, I don't know if, um, should I explain what the Farm Bill is? I'm not sure how. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I think it's, it's one of those things that like we can't, we Anyone who's listening who already knows about the Farm Bill, um, you know, that's amazing. Um, but for those of you who are who are listening who may not know that much about it, uh, that's one of the reasons I asked the question is I knew that you have a lot to say about yeah. it, Lisa. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, right. So, and I mean, even if you know about it, like you probably don't know about it because that's kind of the boat that. Well, here, let me, start, let me, let's do it. Let's do it this way. Let me tell you what I think I know about it in okay. brief. And then you can, you can tell me what I got right and what I got wrong and, okay, and then perfect. help explain. So, I mean, in my understanding, the Farm Bill is a piece of uh, legislation that gets renewed and sort of updated uh, every so often. I don't actually know what the schedule is in the U.S. government, Um, but that that essentially provides for um, 
farmers to receive certain subsidies or guaranteed prices for the crops that they are growing. And that is something that has evolved and changed over time. And I know that there's tons of money spent lobbying for certain sectors and some sectors get a lot more out of it. And some sectors of food producers, like my, I believe that fruit producers don't get nearly as much as say corn and wheat producers do um, out of it. And that that's something that Tom Vilsack, who's the current head of the USDA, um, who was the head previously as well, um, has had a lot to do with now more than once uh, different versions of the farm bill. Yeah, so so everything you said is true, but it's it's a tiny sliver of what the farm bill is. So cool. well, so tell, the me, tell me more. Yeah, so the farm bill is is what, what in Washington we call an omnibus bill. So it's basically like all of these different pieces of policymaking get pulled together into this giant package of um, legislation, <laughs> and it's. Every five years, it's supposed to be renewed every five years. Mm. Um, there's often a delay. There was last time. Um, but it it does. So so commodity programs is what you were talking about. That's one big piece of it. These programs that essentially pay farmers um, to, uh, well, that that's a whole other. <laughs> one thing I learned in my class was was more about how, how that all works. And you can get into that. But right. So commodity programs that, that essentially pay um, corn, soy, wheat, cotton farmers um, payments based on what they're growing. Um, and then, but the, the biggest chunk of the farm bill, actually, the most money is SNAP. So nutrition mm, programs are paired with farm programs in the farm bill. So that's that's kind of an interesting component, which is like, it's this piece of legislation that farm groups are really concerned about because it's commodity money. It is, um, it. Well, so and then hunger groups are 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 lobbying because it's it's SNAP benefits. It's how much money is going to go to SNAP and all the associated programs like ones that incentivize using SNAP benefits at farmers markets and and um, just in case anyone listening doesn't know, SNAP stands for Supplemental oh, Nutrition right. Assistance Program, and it's what people colloquially still refer to as food stamps. Right. Exactly. Thank you for that. <laughs> and, and that was just in the news because President Biden just signed in uh, a piece of legislation that would extend those benefits. There had been a bump in those benefits, as I understand it, um, during COVID, but now that temporary bump has been made permanent. Uh, not exactly. Not exactly. So, okay. <laughs> so I, I think what you're referring to is that they just updated the thrifty food plan, which is what determines how much money families that are getting SNAP benefits are eligible for. So it essentially said it determines like what the federal government thinks, like this is how much money you would need to, to feed your family, essentially. Right. And so in the media, they've been framing it a lot as like the biggest permanent extension of yeah. benefits, which right. is true, but it's not an increase in funding for SNAP, which would have uh -huh. to go through the farm bill. It's actually like a, a change to the way that the money is given out, essentially. That is very um, interesting. It came, yeah. I, I was talking, I volunteer once a week at our local food pantry. And so I was discussing oh. it with the director yesterday about whether or not it would affect the number of people who were coming through to get food from the pantry if they mm. had more money in their SNAP and they were that they were able to spend and whether that would cause a drop in clients or not. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's a really it's a really um exciting change. Like I it that the the that uh plan, the thrifty food yeah. plan, it hadn't been updated in a really long time. And as we all know, like the cost of food obviously changes. Yeah. <laughs> and in, you know, there's this thing called inflation over time and you need more money to buy the same amount of food. So um so yeah, so so commodity programs for farm payments snap and then there's this whole other giant um component of the farm bill called conservation programs, which is the money that we pay mostly to farmers to incentivize more environmentally friendly practices. Mm. Um, so there, there's several programs in that bucket. Um, and then there's a bunch of other stuff. We'll <laughs> just put it that way. Like there are a lot of other small things in the farm bill, um, but it's just this giant kind of mega piece of legislation. And um, it really kind of determines a lot about what, um, we grow in this country, how we provide for people who can't afford food. And so it really has like a huge role in shaping um, the food system. And so 
the the great thing about this fellowship was I've been covering the farm bill for for a while and I and I know a lot about it, but this kind of gave me the opportunity to get into some of the history. It gave me a lot of context for mm-hmm. like why things are the way they are and how they got here. And so I think it'll just um serve me as we go into like the the next farm bill is um 2023 and so the negotiations will be starting soon and so it's just kind of like extra um information for me to have and so that I can ask the right questions you know yeah. I can go in and and kind of um be set up for success in terms of covering what matters um yeah and it was you know um really nice to just be at a law school for two weeks, not doing my regular work and kind of just learning like, Oh, I just, I really, really enjoyed that experience of, of just kind of getting to um, take in information and not, not be constantly <laughs> putting it out right. there. Right. Sure. Yeah. And Vermont is really nice in the summer. Vermont is so nice. Oh my gosh. It was beautiful. I got to go hiking and, um, experience lots of good food of course <laughs> um awesome uh and then you also have a uh, a regular newsletter that you produce called peeled i do oh i didn't even say that at the beginning tell me about the the genesis of that how did that get started and and how does that differ from the other uh, work and reporting that you do for say civil eats or the farm report yeah, so I started it at the beginning of of this year, so it's still fairly new. Um, and I mean, essentially, I started it because, as a freelance journalist, I'm I'm doing so much in this space, and I'm writing a lot. But there's always just extra things that I have that I really want care about, and I think people should know about that either don't have time to pitch, um, I don't have. Um, you know, maybe the the right outlet isn't there, or maybe it's something I really think I, I want to write about, but Civil Eats has already covered it from some other angle or like, I just have all these stories that, that I want to get out in the world. And I thought, you know, this would be a nice compliment to, to the other, um, stories that I'm already doing and kind of just add to, to my, um, portfolio. And the, the big way that it's different is that, um, as a journalist writing for, publications like Civil Eats or The Guardian or The Washington Post, you know, I I obviously have to um, kind of adhere to the voice and the structure of what those publications, um, you know, require, like their their kind of um, structure format. And um, the nice thing about Peeled is I get to be a little bit more um, casual. (laughs) I get Mm -hmm. to kind of use my own voice a little bit more. And um, so it's just a nice... um, kind of different, um, conversational, um, approach that, that I don't get to use often. And I think like, for me, that the idea was, I, I thought it's, it actually goes back to kind of what I was talking about in terms of how I started my career in this kind of lifestyle world. And then I went into this sort of deeper newsy world in journalism. And part of my idea was like, maybe I could bridge the two by, um, talking about these like deeper, bigger issues, but talking to people in a, in a kind of more conversational voice and helping them like understand what's going on in a way that isn't so just like, Oh, read another news article, read another news article. Right. Like, so kind of like, I mean, it sounds like a little paternalistic to say like holding people's hands on it, but I don't know, this stuff is complicated and often depressing and like, and, and there's so much to care about right now. Right. Like, I mean, I can't think about anything other than Afghanistan and and it's like, God, now I have to read another story about antibiotics and meat or something. So, so part of my idea is just like, maybe I can make it a little easier for people because I know, I know that people want this information. I know they want to eat better. I know they want to, you know, um, be involved in, in climate action. I, people care, but it's just, there's a lot. And so I'm just trying to like make it a little easier, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I really appreciate it. I mean, as someone who is in this world and trying to pay attention to all this stuff, but like I have my own work and I have my two kids and a dog and like, you know, like there's a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) Right. So like the, you know, and for me, I mean, I, I have come to this sort of, you know, recently I'm on, you know, who knows how long it'll last, but like recently I'm on this sort of schedule where like I get up early before anyone else in the 
house. I get my cup of coffee and I sit down and I look at my phone, which I know, you know, oh, look at your phone. But I try very hard every morning to spend like a half an hour or so reading. I subscribe to all these different newsletters mm. because for me, it's like that way I don't have to be paying attention to all the stuff you're paying attention to because I know, right. Lisa, thank you, that you are paying <laughs> attention to all this stuff. And then I can read your <laughs> newsletter along with the other ones that I'm subscribed to and have some idea of like context around this stuff. Um, yeah, because that, you know, because if I had to pay attention to all of the headlines and happenings and, you know, machinations of the, uh, you know, of food policy, I wouldn't be able to actually think about all the other stuff I have to think about. So, yeah, well, I'm glad that it's working that way for you, because that is definitely my intention to kind of like distill um, a lot of this stuff for people. And so, yeah, I, I don't want you to have to sit through, um, you know, house agriculture committee hearings like I do. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want anyone to have to, to do that. And, and I don't want to sit through them, but I also recognize that those things are important. And that's where these decisions are getting made that have all of these follow on effects yeah, down the line. Definitely. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Dot com. I wanted to, to talk a little bit about, I mean, some, some of your recent, you know, your recent work um, and also just about like if there are stories that you feel like we can't report on enough, like if, you know, like I know that like the media landscape is insane and of course like we're still hearing about the former president who I'm like, if I never see his name again in print, that would be, you know, be too soon. Right. Um, but like, you know, but there are all of these things that you're reporting on, you know, that I feel like, you know, are, are there any specific ones that you feel like are like things that people really, really, really need to be paying attention to? Yeah. I mean, I think like anything related to, to climate obviously is yeah. just so pressing. And, um, I, you know, the caveat is that like, when it comes to, um, climate action, like the, the biggest thing that, that needs to happen is this rapid transition away from fossil fuels. Right. And like, that's the most important thing. And I, and I always like have to say that before I like talk about food and climate, because I just, I don't want to like people to think that, you know, we can all just start eating differently and then <laughs> everything will be okay. Yeah. Um, but like that being said that that's the most important thing and we need to sort of focus on that, but, um, food is really important. And, um, there've been a bunch of reports that have come out in the past year that are pointing to the fact that it's even more important than we thought. And that, you know, we, we won't be able to meet some of these goals related to controlling warming if we don't change the way that food is produced. Um, so, and, and, and also like, you know, even so, so it's about reducing emissions from the food systems, but especially methane and, and nitrous oxide, but also, um, you know, the climate for the next 30 years is going to be warming no matter what we do, even if tomorrow we, you know, right. stop using fossil fuels, there's going to be this period where things are, are still going to continue, you know, the, the ship is already sort of sailed. It's, right. it, we're going to be, <laughs> seeing more droughts, more floods, and we need to be paying attention to, to being able to produce food amid that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's not just about like reducing the contribution, but also getting really um, serious about um, how to make sure we can produce food while the world is changing and there's all this extreme weather. And I think like there cannot be enough stories about that. And right. um and I mean, what a lot of my reporting is focused on in this space is um, it, it might seem tangential, but I don't think it is. I think it's actually at the heart of it is is like 
um, meat companies, right? So yeah. I've been doing a lot of reporting on um, meat companies in terms of uh, they're sort of just like corporate power, right? Like part of being a journalist is holding power to account, and these companies have more power than than anybody. Yeah. And um, and as as more attention is on them in terms of like, oh, we know that meat um, is is, is industrial. I should say like meat produced industrially is not good for like it is the biggest contributor to say methane emissions um they're they, these companies are are paying attention and they're shifting their messaging they're shifting um they're they're making quote unquote commitments to going at zero doing all these things and and so i'm i'm like really focused on paying attention to what they say they're doing what are they actually doing um and and thinking about like just I I mean I I don't think I think we need to be thinking about transitioning to less emissions intensive systems and foods, not just saying like oh we'll tweak this little thing, you know, with what we're already doing. It it doesn't really make sense, but that's gonna that's often the way things happen because those companies have power and resources, right? Right. And we, and we live in a world where like, it's okay for Exxon to be selling us oil and also investing in renewables at the same time. Yeah. Oh, and that's, right? and <laughs> like that's the meat companies are all investing yeah. in like, totally in, in, in fake, example. in fake meat uh, yep. that is not in fact necessarily any better for the planet or for, right. the, or for the consumer um, from a yes. health standpoint, but it currently looks better. It's better optics. Yeah. So that's right. That's like what, what some of the, you know, quote unquote solutions that are being presented are like the meat company saying, Oh, don't worry. We're also making this faux meat from the same stuff that we're feeding all these animals. And, and, and by the way, instead of making it so that the beef is 99 cents a pound, we're going to charge you $7 a pound for the fake meat. Right. (laughs) Right. And we're just going to actually pocket the other, all the rest of the money. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot, yeah, a lot of my reporting and I is, is in that realm. And I think, um, I would love if more people told these stories (laughs) because there's only one of me and like, it is, I mean, it's tough. Like, I mean, I, I have some really hard conversations with, with people. I, it's very hard to get, um, meet company leadership on the phone. It's hard to get them to respond to things. It's hard to get information. Um, but that's why we need more journalists, I think, focusing on this stuff, because, um, you know, as many I think there's just amazing things happening in terms of great farmers doing great things around the country to, like, really create systems that are resilient and, um, you know, focus on biodiversity and and um, reducing emissions and just like wonderful things. But for every like small farm that's doing that, there's just you know (laughs) so many of these other industrial scale farms that it's not going to make a difference if we don't shift the big things um you know so so we need both i think yeah i i heard somebody talk i don't know sometime last year i think about like the the idea of um meatless monday Mm -hmm. and how like it was a good idea but that like to really make a dent, like, the, the, you know, they had done a study, I guess, in a survey and like the people who were doing Meatless Monday were people who already like cared about where their meat was coming from and, uh, and, and, right. and already like, and so it wasn't really moving the needle. And like the point that they were making is like, it's not about getting people to not eat meat for one day. It's about getting people to eat like 30% less meat every day. Yeah. Which like, isn't that, I mean, and it's like, even saying that is so, you know, people just go crazy and it's like, it's not that much, like in, a, in this country, at least, like we yeah. eat so much more meat than is like recommended for a healthy diet. So yeah. it's and not so that little of all of the other ass. stuff. I mean, I, I was, right. at, I was at Boy Scout camp last week with my, with my kid and the food that they served at that camp was so bad Oh God! I mean, you know, I I have gone all I've gone full in as a scout leader since moving to Rhode Island, and I am now a merit badge counselor for the cooking merit badge in scouts, which teaches a whole bunch of stuff about nutrition. Ah. And I had just done it with with the troop, and I sat around a table with them all of last week, and I said, "Do you think that this meets the stuff we talked about?" And every single scout said no. 
And yet here we were in a dining hall with like 700 kids and all being fed, you know, like no vegetables. (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, It was nuts. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm planning to reach out to the camp director to be like, this doesn't make any sense. This is completely against what we're trying trying to teach. (laughs) Like it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, I've been racking my brain to see if I can come up with like a celebrity chef who was a Boy Scout who might be Mm. willing to like help consult uh, on like, you know, and and lend their name to this. So if there's anybody listening who knows a chef who was a Boy Scout, (laughs) please let me know. I'm sure you'll get somebody. Um, so, I mean, yes, there's a there's a lot of gloom and doom and there's a lot of, uh, you know, you are doing a, a lot of work, not, not necessarily in that space, but certainly reporting on things we need to be worried about, but also just kind of like, you know, holding account to power and that kind of thing. Um, I wanted to ask if there's any stories in the last year that are like good, right? Like what are some positive stories and positive things that you've reported on in the last year? Yeah. Um... <laughs> It's a hard question. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's been a been a tough year, as yeah. you know, for for um, a lot of reasons. Um, but um, I I well, one thing I I've written a little bit about for Civil East is what we talked about earlier: this sort of like um, resurgence in um, interest in gardening and yeah. growing things and and seed stewardship. I, that's really positive. Um, I think um, there I've done a lot of coverage on just how like the pandemic and, and kind of our changing habits as a result have changed at least awareness. People are thinking more about these issues and, and, um, and paying more attention, which, it, which is a great step. Um, I think, I mean, there's always just like moments in my reporting where I get to see these farms that are producing food in these incredible ways. Like I, I did this, I don't know if this was this year or last year, but I did a story for food brand on agroforestry, which is like where you, you know, essentially grow food and plant trees, Mm. um, in the same place. And I mean, that's an extremely simplified version. right? Right. But, um, but I went to this farm in Western Maryland and, you know, this guy showing me his farm and it's just like this, it feels like a, you know, garden of Eden situation. Like he's got livestock grazing, like intentionally, um, sorry, intensively grazed and there's trees everywhere. So they have shade, you know, as the climate warms, like these systems, it's like you have trees, they hold carbon. And then also the animals can, it's good for the animals because they have shade. They can go sit under the trees. Um, He's building fences with trees that are just Mm. incredible um, and has this giant like pollinator meadow and there was just butterflies everywhere. And um, orchard, an orchard where he also can graze the animals. But so it's, I mean, I get to see stuff like that where you're like, oh, there's, there are just people growing food really well and and doing, you know, and, and, um, I think there's more of that than we realize. Um, so I do try to, you know, try, try to think about those things when I'm covering some of the harder stuff. Um, (laughs) and you know, and I mean, I think like at the policy level, um, there's some, there's some positive things for sure. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to, to like measure at this point because we're coming, you know, on the heels of an administration that rolled back so many of our environmental, um, regulations and, um, it's like every, you know, it's, it's kind of this process of even just starting to fix things (laughs) is a, is a huge, um, task. So, um, I don't think it's going to be like a, a immediate, um, shift to this, this better system. Um, but there's, there's some things happening that I think are really positive. I wrote this story for Salites, uh, just a few weeks ago on an executive order that Biden put out on, um, addressing consolidation and corporate power. And, um, it, it was a cross industry but but agriculture specifically the meat industry was one of the big industries included and you know they're proposing a bunch of policy fixes that are essentially trying to shift some of the power back towards farmers and away from um, these large companies that are uh, controlling the markets and that um, that's huge like that that seemed politically impossible to me so um i thought that was really interesting and um and they're also like putting a lot a lot of the covid relief money is going to 
um, regional food projects, which I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so like built, they're putting a lot of money into small slaughterhouse, um, processing infrastructure, which is really big. Like a lot of people who are doing meat better don't have access to, um, processing. And so that could make a big difference. And, um, and also just like regional projects that are, um, building kind of food systems in different places around the country. And so there's money, like the, all the money that came through because of COVID that money is now like out in the world and, and hopefully people will do some positive things with it. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a great perspective uh, to take. Um, well, Lisa, it's, it's been educational to speak with you as it always is <laughs> every time I get to talk to you. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure to mention? Um, no, I, I think that was great. Thank you so much, Harry. Uh, I'm sorry if I, I talk too much. No, <laughs> I no, could not talk about this stuff forever. Not at all. And uh, I encourage everybody to uh, read Lisa's writing on Civil Eats and check out the Farm Report and also subscribe uh, to Peeled, which is uh, an excellent, excellent newsletter uh, and helps us see uh, what you're sort of, you know, I guess, uh, putting together and what you're reading uh, without having to read all of it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Please sign up for Lisa's newsletter, Peeled, at peeled.substack.com. And check out Lisa's site, lisaelaineheld.com. And you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter, at lisaelaineh. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tune in and share Time for Lunch, HRN's first show just for kids. And you can reach out to me if you have any questions. My email is harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you again soon. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.